don't you take yours off. As I've explained before, there is a special disinfecting quality about microphones and COVID droplets do not get passed about there because of the microphone, but please keep yours on. Um, welcome to the forum. We meet, of course, today, as always, on Ghana land, and we meet today to talk about the big event at the Adelaide Festival, Midsummer Night's Dream. And I'm joined on the stage, from the left, Teddy Tahu Rhodes, who, <laughs> who can sing and who can act, and who represents in the show the moment when order apparently is restored. So you rep can you try and do that today on stage this yeah, lunchtime? Yeah, can you yes, represent order? Down. Yes. Yes, I play the role of Theseus. So, uh, yes, I am sort of the, the moment that the effectively the dream has ended, really, I think. Ah, so, um, but has it? Has it? Yes, yes has, has it. it. Are, we, are we still in a dream? Yes, we'll, that's the question. We will get, and <laughs> with, with a little bit of a touch of JFK. Yes. Yes. Well, that was the idea. He was uh, he was much better looking than me, JFK. But uh, yes, that was the that was the idea. Yeah. So, um, with Jackie by your side. Yes. Who and Fiona Campbell is a fabulous Jackie, I have to say. It's, so, yeah. she, doesn't she? And it's not just the hair, which is perfect, Jackie. But it's this, no, it's her style. She she's it's she's wonderful. Very elegant. Yes. Sitting next to him is the spirit of mischief in the show, <laughs> Mark Cole Smith. <laughs> I don't think he's been out of work since he was about 12. Um, and for those of you from Sydney, you'll be familiar with Mark's work, of course, because he's in all of the ads for the Dendi Theatre. But after you've got through the ads for the local Chinese um, takeaway and then a couple of ads for the bookshop and then 14 upcoming films, Dendi play this wonderful um, role of the clips from Australian movies before what you're finally there to see begins, the film. And Mark is there hanging out the window of a car, <laughs> screaming. Thank you, I didn't ask for that, but we are all grateful. <laughs> and it is the mistakes he makes in Midsummer Night's Dream that drive the show. Sitting closest to me, closest to me, is Denny Sayers, who's um, one of the world's leading um, directors of opera. She's a great choreographer. Um, she is the organizing spirit um, behind the inspiration for this show. And when last year COVID made it clear that the opera that we expected to see this year was not even being um, produced in France where it was first to be, first to be seen and an opera was needed and, and many of us, particularly those of us who were feeling a bit guilty that we hadn't gone to Chicago to see Midsummer Night's Dream were thrilled that it was going to be Midsummer Night's Dream. But it was always clear that it couldn't happen unless Denny Sayers could get to Australia. <laughs> How did you get to Australia in the middle of COVID? By hook or by crook. That's a microphone. Oh, yeah. you, yes. It's a bit far away. Uh, even a bit closer. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, well, I got to Australia because people in the offices here in Adelaide jumped through so many hoops, because of course I come from what has become the leper colony of the world. <laughs> As you can probably tell from my accent, I couldn't get out fast enough, and I'm dreading going back now. But um, the festival were amazing at managing to get me here. Um, and mainly, I think they were allowed to bring me in because I've worked with Neil on this show since its inception in Houston. He is, of course, the directing inspiration and genius behind the show. I like to think Neil 
is the creative brain, and I'm the scribe and the memory. So I have the show Bible that says what everybody does, technical, singers, actors, animals, children. So <laughs> when they, pi sure when they pick up When they pick up a twig is in your book? Absolutely, yes. yes. Every, every gesture, if somebody, for example, you'll see um, Fiona as Jackie Kennedy picking lint off of Theseus' jacket while they're waiting for the ceremony to begin. <laughs> it's all in the Bible. You thought that was just a spontaneous little moment <laughs> in the opera, didn't you? But Neil's been thinking about that for about six years. Yep. And you've, you've made a note of it. And so it happens every, every time. Blend. What happens if it doesn't happen? Does Neil then take somebody aside after the show? There are notes after every performance. How long do the notes take? It depends on these guys <coughs> and how accurate they are. What are the kinds of notes that you get, Mark, from Neil? I mean, what's, what does he deplore about your performances? There must be something. <clears throat> You're not following direction. That's not what I told you to do. Um, no. Uh, the, notes, the notes have been all uh, refinement and new things, new ideas, which I've really loved as well, like certain little things that may not have been locked in in rehearsal, but just stuff that's sort of like, okay, we can see it now, it's in the space, it's alive, we can feel it with the audience, um, you need to be here in this moment. And this, it's just tiny little, little screws that we're still kind of turning, mm. for the most part, when I do my lines properly and I'm in the right place. Yeah. Is it a thrill to be talking while others sing around you? I mean, it gives you such authority. Oh, well, it feels like a luxury yes. amidst, you know, the, the amount of talent that I'm working sort of shoulder to shoulder with. It's, it's my first time, you know, being in the space with, you know, our baritones and our tenors and, and kind of just... Um, you haven't done a lot of opera, I don't think. No, no, only in my bathroom. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, this is, this is the first and it's been a really enjoyable experience. I mean, I've, it's only four shows. We've got the, the final one tonight and it's all over, so it's kind of... It's a bit bittersweet, to be honest. <laughs> Only all over for now. Surely it's got to have another life yeah. beyond this. How do you go um, uh, after the shows, having spent a good deal of the night hunched over double? I've actually, my body's only just starting to really feel it after the third show last night. So this morning when I kind of woke up at the Oaks Horizon and sort of got out of bed, sort of crick, crick, crick between each vertebrae. Um, yeah, I kind of feel like, I've, I've been good, I've been rolling around, I've sort of collected these small bruises and yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. tenderised my body mm. over the last couple of nights, but I think, um, I think after tonight's show I'm going to really enjoy just gearing back down for a little bit. I think we've got to do a check at this point. Who is going to see the show for the first time tonight? Ah, we're going to have to be careful. We are going to have to be just a little bit careful. Tonight's going to be our best show, actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back. Um, Denny... Magic is a serious business, isn't it? It isn't just play. How do you actually, how do you actually bring magic to a stage? Wow. Um, well, of course, it takes an enormous team. There's a great many people behind the scenes that none of you see. But I think the main magic happens when all of these guys are so deeply into the characters they're playing and the storytelling that they take your imagination with them. And in a sense, you're the people that make the magic happen by agreeing that that was magic, whereas you know it's, you know it's somebody pressing a button, pulling a rope, them having rehearsed for weeks and weeks. 
Um, and I think the magic is really when the audience and the performers all go on that journey together. And that's something we've all been denied for a year. So it has been amazing to be part of this and to feel an audience having a great night and hearing an audience laugh and gasp. And it's fantastic. And I think it's, it's what we need as, as people. But we want magic, don't we? Yep. We need magic. We need that escape. And I think Shakespeare really understood that, and Benjamin Britten certainly did as well. Mm -hmm. Because there's a kind of hunger for it. As the, night, as the night goes on, you can feel this hunger in the audience. Let's go, let's go deeper, let this be madder, let this be you know, even mm -hmm. more extraordinary. And, and Teddy, you watch as, as this <laughs> proceeds, waiting to be the voice of good sense. Well, it's, um, I have had the great pleasure exactly of that. I mean, I don't, really, I don't appear until the, the very last scene, effectively, the opera. So um, I've had the joy of, uh, of observing and watching it, you know, pretty intimately from, from almost from day one of the rehearsals. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's been great. I mean, I, I always say that uh, it doesn't matter how small your role is, when your little role comes up, you've still got to be you've still got to be on the ball once you get there. It's not there. small, come on. You're oh. an absolutely dominating figure it's a, for the conclusion well, of the it's opera. A, every, every role is significantly important, and you just want... It, 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 it always, I mean, I always think that in, in performance, that um, every member of the, of the chorus, or the, in the kids' chorus, every single one is so intimately integral to the show because... Um, everyone adds so much to that magic that, that Denny was talking about. So, yeah. And you have one of the greatest lines that Shakespeare ever wrote, nothing can be amiss. What was that again? Nothing can be amiss. Nothing can be amiss, exactly right, yes. And um, Could you do the rest of the line for us? Oh, goodness me, you're going to take me out of context here. Um, <laughs> nothing um, can be amiss if simplicity and duty attend to it. That's right, yes, just a minute. I've got to, I've got to take myself into, put me on the spot here. Um, uh, could somebody give this sing man the note? Yes, I'm trying to think. You know, I really can't think of it right now. <laughs> I'll come back to it. I'll come All right, back, we'll come back to it. Yes, yes, yes. Denny, the crucial, a crucial element of that magic mm. is the kids. Now, how much do the kids actually understand of what's going on on the stage? Do they, do they get it as well as perform it? Oh, I think so. I mean, kids' imaginations are so free and so open. If you tell them that what they're carrying in their hand is a dew ball, they go with it, totally. It is a dewball. You no, know, that's what yes. it is for them. You tell them that they're running through the forest, and they are. They totally go with it. And that, that's so much about what the play is about, is the fact that people's imaginations take them into those different worlds. And uh, the children totally go with it. They know the story. They know lots of other people's lines in the piece. Down <laughs> in the dressing room, they're always doing imitations of other people on the stage. Oh, they've how learnt, wonderful. They've learnt bits of the Bergamask dance, and we do it in the warm-up together. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're, they're totally absorbed by it. Do they do puck? I'm, I'm constantly at risk of being upstaged by them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's because you are, of course, famously acting with, with animals and children. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if we could just talk for a moment, Denny, about the animal, the dog. Um, I had hoped we would have the dog with us on stage today. But what went wrong this morning, Denny? 
Well, the dog is currently staying with me. The dog shall be named. Locke is currently staying with me. And we went for a walk this morning and he decided to go chasing the ducks. So he's been in the River Torrens. So I spent quite a bit of time this morning combing pondweed out of his hair. The and things that some of the leading <coughs> opera workers in the world have to do. It's a very glamorous life working in theatre. Mm, especially for Neil Armfield. <laughs> The kids are too young to have experienced this at school, but, but I think we probably all did. Um, Teddy, did you ever perform in Midsummer Night's Dream at school? No, no, I didn't. Uh, in fact, my... Because New Zealand is a different <laughs> issue. <laughs> yes, it hadn't reached us by that yeah. stage. It's a no, long uh, way from Stratford. <laughs> no, it was... Um, I did, of course, know of it, but... Um, no, my first real experience of Midsummer Night's Dream was actually performing Demetrius... Um, a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago now, some 20 years ago. For whose perform production? I did it for Baz Luhrmann's production. Oh, the Indian production. The Indian production, yes. So I, uh, I still know Demetrius pretty well. And it's <laughs> interesting now that I've... Yeah, it's interesting watching it coming from a, obviously playing the, the, older, the older role these days. Yes, yes. Mark, did you experience it at school? I like to think of myself as a bit of a cultural omnivore, but I hadn't. I, did, I knew a little bit, a, a sum of Shakespeare, but I didn't know this play. I knew it on the peripheral. And so I was like, okay, I kind of, I, I understand it's a bit weird and wacky. And, and when I get there to Adelaide, I'll, I'll sit down and, and everyone will be given a script. And I got, I got there on the first day of rehearsals and everyone had their hard covers and hard bound work. And I, I went up to the um, uh, stage manager and I was basically just like, hey, uh, was I supposed to bring my own script? And she's like, we're so sorry, Mark. We're so sorry. Uh, just give us one moment. And I got handed this beautiful old dog-eared copy from the library. Oh. And I opened it. It was 300 pages. And that's when I realised it was a musical score. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and our singer stood up to begin a full run of the whole thing. And I just went, this is a, the perfect introduction <laughs> to, the, to this project. Wow. And so every page I turned, I kind of scanned and was like, does Puck say something? And yes, he does. Through the forest have I gone? <laughs> like, and everyone in the room knew that I was reading that for the first time. <laughs> but it was, it was a really exciting and engaging way to, to begin this project. Yeah. But Danny, you knew the play from school. I knew the play from school, but also when I was about 28, I played Puck because I was a performer. I was a dancer and a singer and an actor, and I played Puck. And Michael Billington, who's one of the most vicious theatre critics, was one of the most th vicious theatre critics in England at the time, actually said of my performance, I was less irritating than most. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind. Oh, that is something. That's for, the, that's for your tombstone, oh, really, isn't that, it? That's Michael my, Billington, yeah. less irritating than most. That's my byline <laughs> on my biography now. Yeah. <laughs> my tombstone is going to read, his lips are sealed. Um, <laughs> a, lot of people are look, a lot of people are looking forward to it. Um, but, of course, Neil Armfield confesses, in a way, I mean, he's such a closed private person, you get almost nothing from him. But he does confess in the programme that he had a go as Oberon when he was 16 years old. And um, I have heard him now for over 40 years at various times celebrating what a marvellous Oberon he was. And he still, <laughs> you still believe that, don't you, Neil, that you were a great Oberon? <laughs> and to the chiffon you were wearing at the time. Chiffon cut under one nipple, that's right. <laughs> oh, Jesus, we didn't need that detail. Um, 
I should, I should add to this that I, I had a number of very disappointing, uh, dramatic experiences at school. I wasn't cast for Henry V, for instance. I was given the role of the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is not an exciting role. Um, and I was hoping for one of the lovers in Midsummer Night's Dream, but I got cast as, um, as the moon. And, um, but but it, it did give me a chance to say what I think is one of the, the great lines of Shakespeare, this dog is my dog. It's, dog. You know, you can go to Hamlet, you can pluck things from Hamlet, you can celebrate philosophy, but this dog is my dog. It's just completely wonderful. Who here played in a performance at school of Midsummer Night's Dream? Oh, no, no, no. Shut. Oh, what's happening? <laughs> What's happening to this world? Oh, well, celebrate, celebrate it tonight. Um, what's it like actually wrangling those kids? Is it, are, they, are they good? Are they disciplined? Are they...? The kids have had the advantage of musical training. And if ever there was a good advert for arts education in schools, it was the rehearsal process for this because they are so disciplined and focused. They arrived really well prepared by Christy Anderson, who's the director of um, Young Adelaide Voices. And they knew every note. They, they listen when unlike you give Mark, them corrections. Yes. <laughs> yes, unlike Mark, yes. <clears throat> but really extraordinary. And, and the other lovely thing is there's quite an age range. I think this is, we've done this show four times now. And of course, each group of children, they're incredibly distinctive, and you get to know all their little quirks and foibles. I think we've got the biggest age range this time. And it's so lovely to see how the older ones help wrangle the younger ones, and then this the younger ones it, sort of. have the freedom that some of the older ones are beginning to get a little bit inhibited because of their age, you know, and they just free them up. And it's, but honestly, it's such a good, a good, um, advocacy for arts education in schools because the discipline that they've got from their music training and the their powers of concentration, phenomenal. They sat and watched, we did a studio run through and they sat and they watched in a really focused way whenever they weren't on stage, which was amazing. Mm. Mm. Mark, what did you bring from your experience in film and in every possible, in every possible way in theater? Um, to this role? I mean, what did you discover in the role that, that really went back in your past? Four. Yep. Um, I mean, uh, from a fundamental place, theatre, just understanding that relationship with the audience a little, being familiar with where you are on stage and all of that sort of just the, the, that stuff. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, it's kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, it's kind of hard to, to kind of map or every little sort of skill and sort of subconscious technique you've started to accumulate through all of those disciplines. I think for me, um, one of the most interesting things about Puck is how, um, how delightfully kind of confronting he is to step into. Like there's no half measures. I'm constantly feeling like I have to push right into it and just go 100 and be wild and be glowing and radiating and climbing up scaffolding and cartwheeling and stuff. And I almost, like, like my, my highest judgment is Puck himself. Like, I kind of imagine Puck looking at me and being like, oh, you think you're good, do you? <laughs> 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 
<laughs> I've given you the mantle, mate. <laughs> so that's kind of, I keep imagining that kind of as I go through and I listen to the notes and, and sense everybody else's chemistry and the dynamics of being on stage and sharing the space. But I keep going back to Puck and thinking, well, how would Puck do it? And what would Puck do? And that's, that's been kind of like the biggest meditation through it for me. And, and Puck makes a mess of things. Yes. Otherwise we don't have a play. Yeah, Puck yeah, makes yeah. a mess yeah. of what he's sent to do. Yes. And, that, yeah, and it's kind of that, it's that reminder that no, no one wants to see peace and harmony. They want, they want drama. They want conflict. <laughs> they want a mess. So, but it was yeah. such an innocent mess. I just yes. think it's such an innocent mess that he made. Yeah. You yes. know, it was, a, it was a, you know, an easy mistake to make, wasn't it? Yeah. You, know, you, yeah, were, yeah. you were presented with the with the situation and you just, you just went with it. I think that's one of, the, one of the things with Puck is I'm always wondering, does he know what he's doing or is he just, <laughs> is it, is it a He's genuine. Oh. <laughs> yeah. He's genuine. He was, you know, yeah, he, he yeah. was earnest. He was earnest. Yeah, absolutely. He clearly has a love of mischief, but it is a genuine error. He's told yeah. to put the love juice on the eyes of somebody wearing Athenian, a man wearing Athenian clothing mm. who's with a woman. Mm. And that's exactly, he does what he's told there. <laughs> I think he one a... time he does what he's told and it goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but his orders are hopelessly vague. I mean... Thank you, uh, thank you. It's, <laughs> it's really Oberon's fault in the end because, you know, he's just hopelessly vague. Well, um, you wouldn't think that in the Forest of Arden, which is presumably where Shakespeare was writing this for originally, that there would be that many couples roving around in weeds of Athens. It's pretty specific. Denny, you're talking about Oberon. <laughs> Oberon is supposed to be able to see and feel and sense everything. Ah, the vegetation's Do very thick in that <laughs> And it was a very dark night, yeah. as, you, as you will have seen. Absolutely. <laughs> Teddy, do you... Do you, um, do you You'd be ready at any moment, I suppose, to step into the role if um, there was anything... A puck. No, 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 oh. no. <laughs> That'd hey, be one wrong. Neil wouldn't be casting me as that, I can assure you. <laughs> why not, if necessary? Oh, dear, yes. no, no. <laughs> Strip your shirt off, oh, get dear. down there. You don't want to see that these days, I can assure you. <laughs> I have a modest decorum these days, you know, like everything stays on. Has the dream actually ended when we get to the court? Or is the dream still continuing? Whose dream? Well, I, that's the, uh, we, we actually all stand backstage as we've all wandered off after that last scene and Puck is, is running the evening off. And we, those last lines are what we actually question. Was it a dream? Is it a dream? Or are we still in that dream? That is the, that's the magic of the, of the, of mm. the opera, of the play, of the story. So um, in my mind, when I come on, I'm not in a dream. So the character that I'm playing is, is, is very real. So um, it's, uh, and it, it, you're in the moment and, and playing that moment, it doesn't feel anything other than, than real. So... Uh, but whether or not you're still in the dream, that's the, that's the question, isn't it? Am I right in saying that? Or Because you have sent the lovers to bed. I've sent the lovers to bed, yes. But that's not the end. Can I just point out, you send everybody to bed before they've actually got married. Ah, <laughs> yes. The next well, modern day man, modern is man. the nuptial feast. <clears throat> They're not married yet. 
I think the word separately is there, sort of go to bed separately, um, <laughs> is understood in Shakespeare's it's music. It's a very hard word to sing well, isn't it? Separately is yeah. a tricky it's a word. very ugly word mm. to sing. Mm. Is Shakespeare hard to sing? Um, it's, uh, you know, for, for me as, a, as English, my first language, it's actually, it's actually a delight to sing, I think. The language is so, the language, the way it's written is so beautiful. And um, being an English speaker, I think it, it uh, as opposed to singing in Italian or French or German, whatever, which we attempt to do mm. absolute justice to, Performing in your own language is always a, such a joy, it will, and gives you a different depth, I think, to the words that you're actually saying because you have a complete immediacy to it. So, um, is Shakespeare hard to sing? I, no, I think because it's it's, I guess, very pure the the pure English language. So, in many ways, it's um, it's not difficult at all vocally. You know, it's set beautifully. But that could also be uh, thanks to Britain, the way Britain's interpreted it as yeah. well. Denny, what is Britain's musical world? To what extent does it grow out of um, sort of choral tradition of the English church? I think it's largely influenced by where he grew up and where he lived and worked all his life. Because he, uh, to me, when I... I grew up not very far from the area where Benjamin Britten lived. The flatlands. Very flat, huge sky, the North Sea. I mean, I feel that when I go to the beach in Aldborough, I hear Peter Grimes' sea interludes. It's, it's just there in why? the air. It's amazing. Why, why, and, why and would I, you go to the beach at Aldborough? <laughs> It's marvellous. No choice. It, it's like every English beach. It's very stony and it's unbelievably cold. <laughs> but marvellous. But wonderful. Yeah, mm. last time I swam in the sea there, the water was 11 degrees. That's all right. It was warmer in the water than out. So <laughs> when I got out, I felt quite good, actually. But also, I think he, he loved writing for children's voices. Yep. And he wanted these fairies to be very sharp and like naughty children. Um, and also there is very thick woodland around there, and I think you really hear the creaking of the trees in the opening music, you know, that lovely slidey, glissandy stuff. You just, is like being in a forest and hearing all these strange, extraordinary noises. It's also like being asleep. Yes, yes. There's sort of snoring in it. And yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Mm. But I think he was very, very much influenced by the area that he lived, he chose to live there all his life. You know, he could have gone and lived in London and one of the very sheep. But he actually loathed London. London. Didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Apparently, Peter Pierce didn't like Aldborough very much. Hard relationship, yes. Well, it was, a, I mean, a strange place for them at that time. You know, they were so outside of society. And now, when you go to Aldborough in the church, there are these two very simple lime, um, slate tombstones, and one just says Benjamin Britten, composer, and the one next to it, Peter Pierce, singer. But there's no suggestion of sort of the larger impact that they had on the music world or, or British opera or anything. Mm. 
But that's pretty good. You shouldn't boast on a gravestone. Well, if you can't boast on a gravestone, why <laughs> can you boast? All I'm going to say is I'm going to shut up from this point on. It's the only <laughs> boast I'm going to Having grown up there, there was a sort of local saying, which was, don't open yourself to comment. <gasps> well, he certainly did that. You know, he was a pacifist. He was homosexual at a time when it was illegal. He opened himself to comment. I think, I think people there. in Adelaide understand exactly what the expression don't open yourself to mm. comment means. <laughs> yes, they travelled over here and stuck here. Whereas in Sydney, opening yourself to comment is a way of survival. Ah. Yeah, it's a difference between the cities. Maybe that's why I feel so at home in Adelaide. <laughs> but Mark, you're performing in this show. All around you is this glistening music and you're speaking it, but not entirely speaking it, because some of it is actually sort of semi-sung, isn't it? Yes, yeah, semi, yep, is the key word. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, it's been, it's been one of the really delightful and tedious um, introductions to part of the discipline, which is the measure, the metronomic nature that we're kind of serving a song, this, this song that plays out over a few hours. And... Um, you know, it's quite clear, certain, you know, with, with some of Puck's dialogue, exactly when he's meant to be saying that, and sometimes at what pitch. And that's, that's, a, that's an, a new experience for me and has been really um, fun. And I've really enjoyed the challenge. Uh, so it's, you... it's unlike anything I've had. And then to be inside it, on stage, with the orchestra performing and everyone else singing, there's this, there's this really supernatural kind of livingness to it all. It's, it's just, it's such a buzz. It is, it is, it has something that normal theatre doesn't, but it also has a requirement that normal theatre doesn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Denny, like. Denny nodding at With you. Denny, we yeah, yeah. Very, Denny's yeah. like, of course, it's harder. Welcome to opera. <laughs> so are you keeping your eye on the conductor? Uh, uh, for key moments, there's other parts where I feel more familiar now. Um, sometimes too familiar. Last night I had my first proper blunder, as, as Paul would have heard. Um, but I literally landed too late coming down the pole. Ah. And then... Oh, it's all right. yep. yeah, sorry. <clears throat> Nobody else knew. <laughs> I knew. Except... <clears throat> but, um, yeah, After no. the show, did, um, did, yes. the, did the director come and have a quiet word to you after the show? <clears throat> no, it's all done through emails now just to keep things... <laughs> <laughs> Teddy, there are some people who've seen the show and loved the show but say, oh, more tunes, why don't we have more tunes? Do you, do you see this as a... I don't quite get that, but I, I know that people say it. Well, I have to say that um, it, is a it is great to hear Britain more than once, I have to say. I, yes. think, you, I think you grow to, to understand... Well, not understand, or... You grow to hear the tunes in Britain, actually. I mean, I, when I come to learn it now, or if I... What's, what can sound very difficult doesn't, it, just doesn't appear difficult to me because I hear what he, how he writes it, I think. And um, I think uh, the, the wonder of Britain, and I mean, I've, I've done uh, Neil's fantastic Billy Budd, um, I've done Peter Grimes and uh, Dream, and they're all different in their own way, but all uh, the music, the music, enhances the drama. I think that's what it really is and really plays on the words that, are, that, he's, that he's writing to. Um, so I think uh, the wonder of this is, is, is the music uh, 
the music adds to the story and gives it a different medium mm. rather than just speaking it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't have your big arias. But having said that, and oh, I did say to you outside that there is a mo there, there, are, there are musical moments where the tune is so magical that, and, and, and I don't want to say where it is for people that haven't seen no, it. No, come on. We, really? can, oh, we, well, look, can, we, we can talk about it. We can. That. So I stand, yeah. I, at the end of the show, I literally stand in the show and there's the, as it's winding down and the, the, the children's chorus come in and um, the fairies are back on stage and they sing the, the most divine piece of music which Titania then uh, rides over the top. And I genuinely said last night, for that moment in time, the world is all good because it's literally that perfect. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so to say Britain hasn't got tunes, I just don't think is correct. It's I a lullaby. It's, isn't it's it? a lullaby. Well, it says so. Yeah. Dun, lullaby, lullaby. Dun. It's just it's it's uh, and and for me it is. It's that. There are, there are moments, and it's the privilege of, of working in music and, and, and opera, is that there are moments that are just truly sublime. And that's just sort of going back to what Denny was saying about the privilege of having an audience back in the theatre again, and we realise how important that actually is to us. And the, um, so, yes, for those who haven't seen it and those that are coming tonight, you know, there, is, there are moments in it that are tr truly in musically perfect. You couldn't write them any other way. And then, to cap off the perfection of the music, on comes Puck. Yes. With the most outrageous line in Shakespeare, I think, you know, you've had this perfect experience, and Puck says, you know, if we've offended, <laughs> you know, you've magically delighted people for a couple of hours, and then Puck has this chance to say, well, if we shadows have offended, that must be a gorgeous thing to say, Mark. It's, it's, been, it's been a delight every time to get to that final passage and just tell everyone, just relax, guys, it's just a show. <laughs> <laughs> and you, can I just say, all the, all the fairies backstage are mimicking you. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, <laughs> they're all doing it. <laughs> they know that they know it. They love know it. it. <laughs> it's brilliant. Well, there's definitely a moment where we should be saying to the fairies, don't try this at home. <laughs> yes, yes. No spoilers no if you spoilers. haven't seen the show yet. Yes. But... Oh, yes, that moment. Yes. yes, do not try this at home. Or do not try it unless the equipment is incredibly sophisticated. Exactly. Yes, but we won't say anything more about that. Look, let's have some questions, because I know that you're curious about aspects of this. There's a microphone. Um, this microphone, oddly enough, doesn't disinfect... Um, yeah watch your, the, your breath. So please, um, uh, we'll hold it. Hold it up in front. Oh. <laughs> oh right, here we go. <laughs> Those of you who are not familiar, perhaps, with the way in which the lunchtime forums work, um, they work every single time, and this is the fifth year of them, with Neil Armfield reminding me what question I have not asked. Neil? <laughs> Look, it's a question that I never actually asked of Mark, but uh, I'm, I'm keen to. Um, Mark, the production uh, is so much richer somehow for your presence in the show as a nigger man. Mm. And, and I wonder, um, uh, the sense of, of First Nations power, First Nations magic, uh, aligning with, 
with the sense of the Shakespearean natural world and with, uh, with Britain's sense of nature. And I just, I just wonder how, um, uh, how that sits with you and, and um, uh, what... Um, is, it, is it a burden uh, you, to, to, to kind of take on a representative um, uh, uh, role, in a sense, as well as being uh, just a beautiful member of a team? You're going to get racial now, are you, Neil? Okay, all right. <laughs> No, no, I, um, look, I think, um, I think opera, the heritage of opera really comes from a different place in this world. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a ritual and, and, a, and a kind of social and creative ceremony that's been brought here. And I think there's a lot of, lot of beauty in it and, 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 and a lot of um, valuable heritage to it. Um, it was such an alien space for me. Um, I hadn't been to any operas. It felt like a world um, for kind of high society, very highbrow, like... And so that's kind of why I said yes, in, in a way, because of how kind of exotic and how sort of... Um, uh, how much I knew it was going to be um, unlike anything I'd done before and just familiar enough for me to feel comfortable sort of moving through. But within the show itself and, and Puck, you know, being not just, you know, a spirit of mischief but a part of nature, um, you know, like, I grew up in the bush. I, that's what I, I grew up on the Fitzroy River in the Kimberleys and, you know, in northwest Australia. And I grew up, you know, hunting crocodile with, with my community mob and, like, being out in the bush. And, like, I know that space really well. I'm really comfortable in nature. That's one of the places where I feel most at peace. And, like, even, even the call to do this, I was... I had left Melbourne, I'd finally gotten my, uh, my permit to go back into WA. I'd kept my licence current for the last nine years and I tried to get in twice through the middle of last year while in lockdown and COVID and both were for funerals and both were rejected from WA government. And the third one I thought, okay, I'm going to change things up here. And so I organised with a, a uh, non-for-profit to give me a letter of employment in specialised work in WA and that got me in. And so once I had my WA permit, South Australia gave me permission to travel through, but they didn't say how fast I had to travel. And I then spent the next eight weeks travelling along the southern coastline for the first time with this off-road trailer and solar panels. And, all and I just lived along the Nullarbor and stuff like that. And it was during that period that I got the call from my agent saying, Neil Armfield's trying to track you down. And so all my work from last year dried up and he, he said, you know, we want you to come do this opera. We want you to come do Midsummers, And it just sounded like such an absurd, outlandish thing from anything I was expecting to, to, to get um, invited into that I just said yes pretty quickly. He said, can you cartwheel? And I said yes, which at the time I couldn't. <laughs> That's how much I was, I was like, I was keen. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one of the, if I just get to Adelaide and I can cartwheel, then everything else will fall into place. And, and, and it was in the first week that he literally was sitting there and going, well, show us the cartwheel. <laughs> <laughs> and but how was the cartwheel, Neil? It was, it was Denny didn't find it very exciting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, look, there's a, part of, there's a part of that background. There's a part of, you know, growing up in, in the Australian bush that, you know, I kind of keep, you know, with me very kind of, close and intimately while sort of in that space and finding the balancing act between everything about this play and where it's come from and where it's being shown now, which is here in Australia. So, 
it's, yeah, it's a quiet little subtle balance and I kind of just try to do it with a light foot, yeah. It's a very indigenous presence from the audience. Thank you, yes. yeah, yeah. One of, the big, one of the big changes was when Dale kind of took off the sort of Nordic tattoos and went, let's just do ochre stripes. And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But let's make them glitter. <laughs> the pants glitter. Yeah, man, yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Now, questions, 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 questions. Uh, for Danny. Um, You've done this production several times before in other cities. You have a Bible. Does that evolve over time? Do you have a lot of changes to that Bible? The Bible is always written in pencil because it changes constantly. But it's like a palimpsest because I now have the Houston show still written in there. I have the Chicago version, the Toronto version, and now I have the Adelaide version. And it grows and it develops. And it's always based on who you're working with. So the cast members change in every city we do it in. And so the show changes as well. The, the, the original concept doesn't change, but it, it constantly evolves. It's a very, very fluid process. So the, this particular score is now getting actually quite difficult to read because there's so many versions of it in there now. Um, Denny, could you um, explain to the audience what it's like to sit beside Neil during a rehearsal? <laughs> Is there somewhere you need to be, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's fantastic. It really is, because um, when singers learn a show... Unlike in theatre, where actors turn up with the script and that's when they really start work. They may have done research, but they wouldn't have learnt their text. Singers arrive knowing every note they're going to sing, every syllable they're going to sing, where it sits in their voice, how they're going to negotiate the changes, cover the break, all those things. And Neil arrives knowing the opera as well as the singers. But he doesn't arrive with everything set in stone. So you are part of an evolving process, which is very exciting. He's also always open to listening to other people's ideas. You have to work fast, because if you're going to write it all down, the important thing when you're notating a production is not just what people do, but why they're doing it. Because somebody may do a, a head nod but there are a million different interpretations of that head nod, and you've got to make sure you're telling the right story. And, and the lovely thing is that there is always reason behind what's happening as well. Um, and also, you have to be very flexible. It's no good saying, well, yesterday you said <laughs> you wanted it like this. You know, you can't start dating the decisions when they were made mm. because things evolve and change and develop and you've got to try and go with the flow of it and that's very good for your own brain. Where do those documents end up? They, they all go not, home with me. They should not be thrown away. <laughs> I, I have, one, I have a, a room in my house where I have all of my notated scores. And it's probably illegal, because most opera houses want you to leave them in the opera house, but I like to know where my scores are. Questions? My question is around the libretto. Um, how much of the libretto has been re, uh, recast to make it singable? I, 
We've all seen the play. We've all seen now the, the opera, at least some are going. What's, what, what's the construction there in relation to how the libretto changes from the Shakespearean script? It's all Shakespeare's words except one line in which, because we don't get the first act of the play with Aegeus bringing his daughter before Theseus, demanding that she marries the man he's chosen rather than the man she's chosen, and um, Britain and Piers, who created the libretto from the play, only wrote one line where uh, Lysander explains that there shall I marry thee when he gets to his aunt's house and that they can get married, which basically sums up the situation. The reason they've run away is because they want to get married. Um, but the rest is all Shakespeare. I mean, who would try and improve on Shakespeare's poetry? How much of the play survives in the libretto? Um, a third, a quarter? Denny. That, I, that I don't know. The, yeah, you just, just made a slight mistake there. Oh. Sorry. Oh. This is what it's like working with Neil. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's good for the forum to establish the truth. <laughs> uh, the, the line that is added is compelling me to marry with Demetrius. Right. It's actually Sorry, like, yes. it's a bit like Brett Dean's Hamlet. Brett, there is one line in Brett Dean's Hamlet that is not uh, original Shakespeare. And that uh, is? I can't, I've forgotten it for the moment. That doesn't matter. This is not a forum on Hamlet. This is a forum on <laughs> Midsummer Night's Dream. I'd, I'd like to apologise to Neil for asking a question out of turn exactly. about something else which was related to what we were talking about and might have interested the audience, but I no, am deeply uh, apologetic. And I, I knew as I said that, clear. that I was leaving myself vulnerable. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, sorry, Danny, I didn't mean to... No, I no, you're quite wasn't. right to correct me. I, I sort of, as I was starting to quote it, I thought, I'm not sure I'm right on this line. But there is only one line that isn't mm. by Shakespeare. <laughs> hey, Mark, read the whole thing yet? Oh, the original? Yeah, the original. Uh, no, some of Puck's stuff. Some of the stuff that's not... <laughs> Not in the. Uh, You're the opera. just checking up yeah. on what you've li yeah. missed out on. Yeah, I try, I try to be economical with my time. Um. <laughs> and boy, didn't they cut some fabulous lines. Oh, there's some good stuff there. You could have done oh. wonders with them. Yeah. Why don't you pop them back in? Tonight, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> A special for those of us who are going tonight. Question. Oh. It's coming, it's coming. No, don't try to touch it. Please don't touch it. No. Uh, this might be a question for Paul, I'm not sure, but I'm curious about the fairies, who my understanding is were always boys, and in the productions that we've seen in Sydney, they've always been all boys. And I'm told we are going tonight, we haven't seen it yet, but I've been told that there are also girls, which would, I imagine, change the timbre of the vocal sound. Is this true? Yes, we have got a mix of boys and girls. It's about 50-50. First of all, why should us girls not have the opportunity to sing Benjamin Britten's music? It seems a bit unfair. Yes. Um, and also, I think now most cathedral choirs are no longer just boys sopranos. It's much more accepted that you will have a mix of voices. Um, it's not that easy finding that many boys with unbroken voices who want to run around in sequined bike shorts and wings, <laughs> funnily enough. Um, and 
And it would have been a terrible shame to not have uh, the mix of kids that we've got from, you know, they've come from lots of different choirs. It's a fantastic opportunity for them. And the sound they make is absolutely beautiful mm. and really mm. well blended. Mm. Um, when it was first written, it, Britain always worked with young, unbroken male voices. That's what he wrote for. That's probably what he had access to because at the time he was writing, that's what choirs would have been. So I think we've just moved with the times. Teddy, did you start out in a choir, singing as a treble? I did, yes. I was just actually thinking about that from a musical sense. Whereabouts? I uh, began life in Christchurch and sang in the... Uh, what was the... Uh, the my chapel choir, I guess, at my boys' school that I went to, and... Um, oh, not that school. Yeah, so, well, and I yeah. um, uh, continued it all the way through my sort of schooling years, you know, just singing uh, in choirs, but definitely started off as a boy soprano, and I was, um, as I was listening to what Denny was saying about having the young girls sing and how, how it, it really does enhance the sound, really, I think, um, because it... Um, it gives it a, a security that sometimes boy sopranos don't always have, you know. And um, but yeah, my whole my my life was uh, my musical life was r really only choral singing. That's where I learnt my. So choral. you know all of that Anglican, all, all, that Anglican all of the Anglican stuff. All of the Anglican stuff. Yes, that's what I was brought up with, and um, it's you know, and musically, that's. That's my grounding. I have no other musical background, really. I don't have any theoretical background in music, just choral background, so that's where I learned it all. Mm. Question, question. I was just um, adding to, the, uh, to that discussion. <laughs> uh, the, the, the fairies are about pretty evenly split between boys and girls. The, the, uh, some of the older uh, kids are mainly... Uh, are mainly girls in there. But the production has always, the, the, the chorus of fairies in, in this production, when we did in Houston, in Toronto and Chicago, was always a mixed choir of boys and girls and generally pretty evenly s split. And there's no, like, there's no musical reason. I've got Paul Kilday, an expert on Britain and just coincidentally conductor of this production, um, uh, next to me who might like to make a comment on that. But I, I don't think there's, uh, there's any reason uh, why, why you wouldn't have young girls, sopranos, as well as boys uh, with, with that chorus of fairies. Dale's uh, costuming, Dale Ferguson's costuming, does make them, um, uh, gives them all a unity anyway. Um, that it's only, it's only the, uh, the girls who are getting more developed in, in their adolescence that, uh, that where there is any real sense of them on stage as, uh, as in, terms of, in terms of gender. But the main thing for me was that these kids have a, uh, have a life and a mischief and um, uh, that, that they become the core of the work really because there is a, there's a freedom of play, as Denny was saying, in, uh, in, in, in children's imaginations that somehow defines the whole work. And you see that carried out in the production right until the, the curtain call, which is absolutely controlled by the children. But the children are everywhere. That's the wonderful thing about this production. You never know when they're going, going to um, crop up. Now, Paul, I was... They have to clean the microphone. Oh, they have to clean them. Did somebody touch the microphone? No, there's a fresh microphone. Paul, have you... 
observe the rather odd nature of this um, forum. I am incredibly happy to be on this platform with these people. And they're down in the audience with you, heckling us. Paul, what, how do you feel it changes or, or deepens or enriches the sound to have, to have female as well as male voices in those kids? Yeah, well, two things. Uh, you, you couldn't justify doing it just with boys no. um, today. It, it would just seem so strange and odd a thing to do. Um, and if you listen to Britton talking, um, you would think that he had Teddy's background, uh, that he was a chorister, um, and even though his imagination was fired up by writing for boys' voices, um, it was for writing for a type of boys' voice. So um, he was very fond of George Malcolm's work in the 1960s, and which was kind of a, more of a regazzi sound. And um, so there is something sort of rougher that he liked. And, but I think all those works that he wrote from A Boy Was Born Onwards, um, The War Requiem, Spring Symphony, um, all of these pieces that have a boys' choir um, involved, uh, today it, it would be almost odd to have them just with boys. And, um, and the sound now is so, so refined. Where, what a privilege working with Christy Anderson and these kids um, because it's just, it's just so great. So that's is, my feeling. Is there a difficulty pitching in an operatic theatre the treble, the treble voice and the, the voice of young girls? No, no. There's just not. Like, if they're well-trained and, and, and if they learn it all properly, Britain was very careful um, in all the works for kids that he helped out as much as possible. I mean, Teddy said something great before, which was that, you know, when you first encounter one of these scores, you can scratch your head, either as an audience member or as someone learning it. You can scratch your head for a while until all the pieces fit into place and you go, ah, OK. Yeah. And Britain was really careful to make sure that he gave little hints to the kids so that the pitch is looked after. And, um, and it's only really late in the end of the 60s when he wrote The Children's Crusade that he really threw the kids in at the deep end and, and gave them <laughs> very little help at all. But these other works, yeah, he really looks after them. Paul, thank you. Paul, by the way, of course, is also the distinguished biographer of Benjamin Britten, um, knows more about the man than anybody else now living on Earth, um, as well as being the superb conductor of this night. Indeed. Um, We've got time for one more question, perhaps, yes, here. I saw it on Sunday afternoon and I was absolutely mesmerised. I was wondering if Mark could do his kookaburra again. <laughs> I think that is the most perfect way to end the forum today. So I'm going to thank you all for being here. Um, and, um, and you have such an excitement ahead of you tonight, those who are seeing it for the first or like me the second time. Thank you for coming. Tomorrow I'm going to be talking to Robin Nevin um, about a German life. Um, and now we are going to end the, the, um, the forum today at lunchtime by handing over to Mark Cole-Smith. Mark.